to Conversations with Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. This is an independent music podcast, and speaking of music, that song playing us in is called Shoulder Season. It's from the album The Punishment Zone, and that is by Free Love Fenner, and that album comes out February 2nd. And my guest today is the person singing that song, Caitlin Loney, and uh, that will be out on Moon Records. And if everything... Free Love Fenner is in the show notes, as well as all things Matt Dwyer. And if if you're a first-time listener, thank you for coming. And if you like music, check out some of my uh, past library. There's a rich array of music guests. And even before I became a music podcaster, there was all kinds of other people I interviewed, uh, authors and filmmakers. So go check out the library. It's uh, There's a lot of great stuff also. This is my second week of the new logo. I hope you're enjoying the new logo. Charlene Yee did that. She was also last week's guest. And uh, so there's going to be some merch coming out for that. Uh, All things Matt Dwyer, that's also, uh, that's my linked tree. Or you can go to themattdwyer.com and uh, pick up some merch soon, as soon as that new merch is ready. Or you could become a Patreon subscriber because uh, I post a lot of my episodes on... Uh, Instagram, or uh, a lot of them are, I don't know where my mind went, but I do have an Instagram, go to Conversations with Dwyer, and I know that's a great way to know what shows are coming up or who I've had on in the past, but um, a lot of these episodes are recorded, so you can see the video on uh, Patreon, you can become a subscriber, you get extra bonus, a lot of times my interviews go way longer, so uh, there's extra bonus material, I have a blog, videos, photos, all kinds of stuff. So become a Patreon subscriber. That would be really great because I do this all by myself. That being said, okay, let's, uh, sorry, I it was not the most focused intro because uh, it's a Saturday here and it's mayhem. I have two kids, two dogs, and uh, so anyway, here's my conversation with Caitlin Loney. <laughs> Was radio a big part of your? Because in where I grew up, radio was like very diverse, and like we had blues and like forties radio. Like they play, and was was it diverse where you were? Yeah. So I well, I grew up in Sudbury, which is a pretty small, like you know, hundred thousand people, northern Ontario. So I used to listen to. Like we didn't have that many radio stations, but we did have a college radio station, and for a while. I had like a little show where I would DJ. It was a, the radio station was in a trailer with a massive antenna beside it, you know, receiver, whatever, like transmitter thing. And uh, yeah, so I, you know, I had this sort of, I was part of that community. So I'd listen to that radio station all the time, all the time, CKUT. 90.3 90.3 FM. <laughs> um, and that was, yeah, I mean, college radio is awesome because it's so, you know, you have everything from like country to reggae to, you know, and then we were playing like, you know, electronic music, like we were DJing, like sort of rave stuff, like breaks and trance and like, yeah. So, yeah, it was cool to be in such an eclectic kind of like, um, and then the other stations were like rock, you know, they would just play classic rock. We more, we moved more rock than Inco. That was, which is the mining company that was big in the town. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, a, that's Every good. station has that rock. Every, every town has that rock station though. Did you get to play what you want or did you have to follow sort of like a protocol? There was absolutely no protocol. Like you just show up, you know, and do whatever you want. So that's, I wish I listen to a lot of community radio still. Like a, you can get the apps on your phone and I find that far more, I don't know why there's not more of that. Cause it's m- mainstream radio is uh, tedious. Yeah. And I, I don't know where radio stands right now. Like, you know, people buy, get serious, right. Which I, th- I don't even know if that's programmed by a human. Like if it's just like by an <laughs> algorithm or something like satellite radio demons, I think demons program. That. I don't know. Well, they have a station is like the ACD station, the yeah. ACDC station or the Tom Petty station. You know, I was in my mom's car and I was like going through, I'm like, what is this? What does this mean? Tom Petty? They play Tom Petty all the time. Or I know 
uh, I can't, I believe her, she, I might pronounce it more Irish, but the woman from the Pogues has a show on Pearl Jam radio and like, she'll post her playlists and it will be like, it, it, like every fifth song is like Pearl Jam. And I'm like, I don't, I mean, even if you love a band, it just seems like, right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's only so far that that can go before people just start to hate Pearl Jam. It's like, I love Pearl Jam. And now, you know, it's every side project, every... People started hating them circa 97, it seemed. Which I always felt was... I don't know. It seemed like uh, Creed came, and then that with Creed came the inevitable hatred for Pearl Jam. Wait, was that the name of a record? Or was no, it the Creed name of a band? No, Creed was that... Uh, Take you higher, that song. <laughs> I think I was so involved in, in like rave culture in 1997 that I just couldn't even, nothing else was even like, I couldn't even hear anything. Uh, <laughs> so I wouldn't, I didn't, there's all of these people will be like, oh, you know, like the band, like they'll name a band. I'm like, I've never heard of them. And people are just like, what is like simple plan or some kind of band? Like, you know, whatever. I've like vaguely no simple plan. What, what was attractive to you about rave culture? <clears throat> I don't know well, much about it and I've never done ecstasy, but I know, right. Ecstasy is the big part of it. I, I guess, well, in rave culture, yeah, drugs are, widely associated with the culture, but um, what attracted me to this culture at the age of like 16, 17, um, it was like a completely immersive culture that was sort of trying to, in a way, build a utopia separate from regular life. So like, you know, you there was something that happened with like subcultures in the 90s where everybody was part of a subculture and it was pretty easy to be like, I'm a punk. I'm like a grunge person or whatever. But there was something about like with the electronic, electronic music culture that it was like, we're going to just completely have like another world, like, <clears throat> you know, festivals, <clears throat> excuse me, not COVID. <laughs> um, we're gonna we're gonna like completely build this utopic kind of like other world and it was I guess like I was really interested in as a teenager in like 60s culture like and some different kind of like psych psychedelic culture like you know I was reading like Timothy Leary's biography autobiography and um you know I don't know you know, Aldous Huxley, like Doors of Perception and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, it just sort of like made sense to like be involved in that. And I, I really like, I was a very early adopter, a very early nerd adopter of the internet. So I was on these like weird message boards and stuff talking about electronic music. And some of these sites are still like, in existence, like Hyper Real. It's, well, I think it is. I haven't checked in on it. But I learned a lot about like, DJ culture and electronic music and like these different sort of like, especially like people in England, cause they were doing this in like the late eighties, but there was also like Detroit and all of, there is just all of these like cultures that were sort of building something utopic and technological. And I mean, I'm not into it now as much, but <laughs> I still have my records and stuff. I didn't, I didn't know any about that. I know very little. It's kind of fascinating though, that that was, uh, it's, it was a movement that I was completely unaware. And it kind of came out of the Manchester scene, didn't it? Like Happy Mondays and that sort of world? Well, yeah, like, yeah. But there's there was also, I would say, this is a contentious issue that was often being talked about. Like, what is the origin? Because there was also an important culture in North America. So in, you know, coming out of disco culture, like, um, black and Latino gay, uh, like late night, um, dance events, they became like the word, um, some people say the word house, like it comes out of that culture because it was, there was a place called the warehouse, but it, it, things were moving back and forth, you know, like people were traveling back and forth between England and 
New York, England and Chicago, England and Detroit, like they, all or people were sharing cassette tapes and stuff. So, you know, there was all of these different micro scenes. It was a very genre based music, like, you know, people that were there, there was like, it became very, very well-defined little genres. So it's weird to be talking about this because I, I'm not at all, I'm not at all, you know, like there is drum and bass and house music and techno and like these became very distinct cultures actually. Yeah. I'm from Chicago. So I was full aware of like the house, like that was huge. I never got it. I, maybe I was, but I, it, but it was like prep, like you couldn't escape it. It was like, uh, house kind of gave me anxiety, which is odd because then I would listen to ministry. (laughs) So it was like, which would probably now give me anxiety. Yeah. But I mean, maybe it just matched your mood at the time. Yeah. I think that your affects and how you were feeling, you know, (laughs) angsty. (laughs) Yeah. I was like in my early twenties and whatnot. So I I had rage for no reason for a, a white guy, white guy rage. Um, did that, did the house have any effect on your, were you already interested in creating music at that? Did that, or that, did that rave scene have any influence on like what your music trajectory would be or not at all? I mean, I was always interested in like making you, like I, before that I was, uh, sort of like a, you know, angsty, gothy teen who, I listened to like a lot of like Cure and I don't know, Violent Femmes, that kind of stuff. Like, like stuff that was like, it was already, it had already happened, but people were still, there's certain kinds of music that people still like will continue to listen to, even though it's, it's already had its moment, Depeche Mode and stuff like that. And it was like, I was the kind of person that would listen to those bands. And I played, I, I had a guitar and I played guitar a bit or tried to write songs and stuff. And, I was like briefly, I had like this little punk band with some, some dudes, but everyone was too shy to sing, but we got our <laughs> set, we got it. We were called bonus prize, but we had this little song that was instrumental, but somebody played it on the radio, probably just as a joke or whatever. Like we were like 14 or 15 years old, you know? And yeah. So I was, I was like, you know, I was always interested in the idea of making music, but I, you know, I was never virtuosic or, or, that serious about applying myself or whatever. <laughs> so with electronic music, I, I, I would DJ, which is a different, you know, it's not compositional or anything, but um, I was always dabbling with songwriting and, and stuff. So, yeah. When did it sort of click that, that it was something that you wanted to pursue? Was there, is that a definitive moment like in a biopic? <laughs> which are- Oh, I guess yeah, so I I wrote a bunch of songs while I was in this weird exchange kind of like volunteer thing in Bulgaria because I was alone a lot. I was like really like in my early 20s and just by myself. And I, I found this like really like this keyboard where I, it, I couldn't play chords. I could only play single notes, but like at least I could record the melodies and write down the melodies. Um. And I, so I wrote some really like rudimentary songs and lyrics and stuff. And when I came back to Montreal, I sort of was like looking to, um, yeah, work with people. And I guess that's when, like, I was sort of, I started listening to like guitar based music, sort of like getting back into like, you know, stereo lab and, 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 um, uh, my bloody Valentine, stuff like that. Like I was, I remember listening to that, those bands a lot at that time. And yeah. So I, anyway, well, I met Peter soon after and we, yeah, he, he's an amazing guitarist and, uh, knows more about music than, than I do, but we collab, we started collaborating and that was, that was like an, we started collaborating in like 2005 and we have been like, we've, we've never not collaborated. Like now we know, I mean, we're, we're also, yeah. You're like, we do everything together. Right. So, yeah. I'm always interested in that, how like the, the beginnings, cause you see like just how a band clicks or how 
these things happen because it's like sometimes it's just like this random like forces meet and this magical thing happens which almost at times seems impossible if that seems like that you I, i don't know if i'm articulating that well but like like did you like you see ads for bands and you're like, we want to sound like yes meets Rush meets Molly Hatchet. I don't know why I picked those three bands. <laughs> no, but it's always like that. It's always like these really disparate references. Yeah. It's like looking for a vocalist. I love that when it's like a band like looking for a vocalist and you imagine these dudes like in um, one of those like practice spaces or something, they're sitting around it's like, well, why don't you sing? No, I don't want to. Okay, well, let's put up some ads for a vocalist. <laughs> I think you know, I grew up in an area yeah. that was like uh, trashy, and I just remember a guy in a music store with like a half shirt, but a pot belly, and but the shirt had like f- self-made like fringe, and he was like butchering a Yes song, and just That's being amazing. like, "I'm starting this band," and you know, and like talking to some guy like trying to start a band, and it was that sort of like mix of bands and i was like this is gonna be awful and i want to see this <laughs> i love yes i've I got nothing against like... yes yeah i mean it's <laughs> i mean that i feel like Prague got like a weird bad rep for a while because of i don't know post-punk or i, I don't know why so i mean some of it is yeah. self-indulgent and gross <laughs> but like they're like roundabout is a fucking amazing tune I love, I love Rush and I love Yes. And I love, uh, I mean, there's so many ideas in that, in, in one song. So many time signatures and <laughs> ideas. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I used to dismiss Rush, but lately when we're driving around, we'll play like the rock station. And yeah, because they're Canadian and you have to play 30% Canadian content on the radio in Canada. So they play Rush. So same with the I love it when they come on. Sometimes they'll even play like two back to back songs. So it's like 30 minutes of Rush. What's what's wild (laughs) to me is sometimes Americans, probably because this goes along with our dipshit egos, will assume Canadian bands are American. Like I saw some guy post on Twitter, like, who's the greater American band? Credence or the band? And I was like, the band's Canadian, you fucking idiot. (laughs) (laughs) I forget that though. Yeah. Are they all Canadian in the band? That's I don't I've no I don't actually don't know. Like, did you see that the documentary, like the The Last Walter was Yeah. Boy, there's some serious coke going around that you some of those guys just look gacked out to the hilt. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Robbie Robertson seems all right, but yeah, it's like, anyway, I don't know if they're all Canadian, but it's true. I mean, a a lot of, I don't really see that much difference to be on, like, and I think a lot of other Canadians feel this way too. It's like, I mean, I don't feel that separate from the United States, I suppose. Like I get really wrapped up in what's going on in the United States and you know, it's just, it's like we're just another state or something. I mean, we're the size of California. Think about that. It's weird. That is, that I did, I didn't, I mean, the land mass is bigger though, right? Do you just mean population? For sure. I mean, the population is like 30 million approximately. So it's, it's a better, pretty strange. I would gladly live in Canada any fucking day. Come on, come on up. Every Canadian guest <laughs> I've, I've asked if they would house my family. <laughs> you don't want to, I live, yeah, I know I live in an apartment, but I'm sure we could hook you up. I appreciate Everyone's it. moving into the suburbs in Montreal because, you know, so there's apartments up here. Is that, is it this, sort of the same as the States? Like the city's got very expensive and then everybody now is exiting? That's exact. like... Yeah, I think, well, it's that, but also I think people quickly reacted to like the COVID thing and staying inside in their tiny condos or apartments or whatever. And um, they, they're just like, yeah, I mean, you could buy like a suburban house for less than like a tiny condo. It's basically just like an apartment or whatever. So, yeah. Uh, Yeah. So there is a trend. And now I think it's just like before it was like, if you were, 
a certain gender, if you're like a millennial or something, you're going to, you know, live in the city. And that's like what you would expect for your lifestyle. But that kind of changed. Like people are like willing to not necessarily live in the city. So I don't know. I, yeah, I, I think it's, it sucks that when everybody wants to live in the city and all the prices go up and it's like, you know, I don't, and then people complain about things like noise and stuff, you know, people, it's like they want some of the suburban comforts, but in the city, you know? Yeah, you can't. I used to work in a bar and this guy would come downstairs and complain about the noise. And I'm like, you moved above a bar. <laughs> like, this is not on us. This is on you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, what do you expect? Like, you want, you think the city's cool and it's full of culture and it's like, well, culture is noisy. You know? <laughs> culture is culture's messy and noisy. So get used to it. Uh, when you and uh, just to go back to the band, uh, mm-hmm. but when you and Peter started working, was there an immediate connection of what you wanted to do with sound and how to develop free love Fenner or, yeah, I mean, I, I would say, like, making music and, like, listening to music were equally important. So, um, we, yeah, we just had a lot of excitement about certain certain kinds of music. Or, I mean, sometimes we, later on, we sort of call it fracking, like, finding these little gems, you know, sort of unknown things or maybe there's just like one good song on a record or even like one part in a song finding these kinds of like I guess like inspiration or like and connecting all these pieces together I guess that's like part of we're we're constantly like I don't know talking about music and talking about ideas and um yeah so we had that connection like you know when you sometimes like two people they just don't stop talking it's sort of like we met in 2005 and we just like we just had this long conversation for the last 15 years that hasn't stopped so that is part also part of our like music making process but you know making music it's always like sometimes it's fun and easy and sometimes it's like you know it's a struggle but you know, the process is not always the same or whatever. Um, but yeah, no, we clicked in terms of like what we thought was important, like what was important. So like, you know, original melodies are really important to us, like trying to find, like, I don't know, we, we sometimes talk about like melody being sort of like a sentence structure like melody is like the sentence and like so when you're writing a melody it's like you're writing an idea and trying to like formulate this idea to communicate um now there's lots of kinds of types of music that melody is not as important but i guess for us melody and harmony etc i'm using melody as sort of like a catch-all term of like the you know the melodic structure of a song um that that's that those are ideas you know and they convey certain ideas it's yeah i i don't know how else to i think what I, else to say about that it's because it's interesting when i was researching you and 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 the and free love fenner i don't know if i don't know why i keep wanting to say band and then i'm like is that correct because it's the two of you mostly right yeah, yeah, we work we work with other we work with other people, but yeah, because um, most of the stuff because I always look for personal history stuff, and most of the information I found was about your studio and the process, which I thought was interesting. There was no mm-hmm. like, and then we got drunk and decided to do a band. <laughs> it's it's, like, it's all been very the research has all been very technical, and I thought that was. Uh, Interesting. And like, cause you built a studio together mm-hmm. and was that, what was the, the, cause it seems like, was that, uh, is was that an extension of what you were doing creatively? Like we should have this studio so we could constantly sort of explore and. Uh, yeah. The studio started not necessarily as an intentional thing. I mean, when we first started, we were recording on a, a four track, like, you know, it's approximately 
I'm show, I know this is recorded, but I'm showing you <laughs> my hands right now. You know, approximately the size of like a computer. It's not very big. It's cassette four track. So not everybody will have seen a cassette four track. So I'm trying to describe how big it is. So we had that and we were recording music and demos and, um, we, Peter got, bought a tape machine and a half inch eight track with a friend and then eventually to share, but eventually, you know, Peter just bought the whole thing. And, um, yeah, because we, we, yeah, we've always recorded ourselves, ourselves because basically, the studio is like a very uh, recording and the studio and the equipment, it's like very central to um, our creative process. Um, not to say that we start recording right away and, but um, we do a lot of creative work in the studio. It's it also, I guess I should explain that it's at, yeah, it's a completely analog studio. So yeah, once we got that half inch eight track, we started getting more tape machines over the years. So it's been, that was like really starting like in 2006 or something that we started, you know, because we moved into a place that had a basement and it was this big space where we could build the studio. So we've just been, it's been growing and, you know, Peter learned how to um, maintain and uh, fix tape machines and um, because they are very like finicky. There's a reason why, you know, people have moved away from tape in the sense that like, you know, everyone has a home computer or a laptop or something. So you can kind of like, you have this double purpose for this regular machine that you would, have, that you would just have anyway, but tape machines, they take some maintenance and attention and um, you have to read the manual. Like you have to know <laughs> how they work. And so yeah, so at this point we have many tape machines, like a you know one inch sixteen track, one inch eight track. We have several, you know, uh, just stereo machines, and we do a lot of. I mean, we record our music. It's just to simply record it, but we also do a lot of um, sort of experimental tape techniques, like tape loops and um, various types of uh, time-based effects, like delay and flanging. Um, and using multiple tape machines at the same time and, and just experimenting. I mean, there are people who still use tape, like it's not a completely obsolete um, medium. And certainly there's been an increase in, in interest more recently. Um, but yeah, we often get asked like, why, why bother, you know, and does it sound warm or does it sound better? And, you know, the, the, the problem with, with like trying to qualify the sound of tape versus digital, I don't, we don't like to talk about that because you could always do some kind of like scientific ex comparison or something where you're like, no, but look at the sound waves are the same or you can't. So the thing, the thing that I would say about tape is, is more about the process. So we're like a screen free studio. I mean, we have a computer for like the final, you know, computer also records bands in the basement. Um, but you know, so you eventually need a computer because the world functions digitally. <laughs> so you need to have a final release format or something. Um, but, uh, it's mo it's a screen free process. So we're not using that same, that same machine that you, you know, you do your taxes and you work and you, zoom and you do everything else on we're not using that for like our creative process where we have like a completely different setup and also the other thing i would say about like um non-linear editing i don't know how far you want me how how <laughs> nerdy but so with, with digital audio uh, you know, you, you can do non-linear editing. So you can go back to like one part of the song and just like rearrange things or like, oh, I don't like, I want this chorus to be somewhere else. Like when you do that with tape, you have to literally like cut the tape. Like, and you know, it's like editing. Like if you, people might be more familiar with like editing film. Right. 
and like, you know, oh, we're going to put this scene here and, and put it together. You can do that with audio as well. Obviously, there's audio in, <clears throat> in film, but it's a much more intentional, it's not, you know, decision. It's not, it's hard to, um, to go back and fix things. So you're, you have to be a bit more intentional, a bit more planned when you're doing. I read that. Analog. I think it was Peter that said like, it helps you with the decision process if you work on tape, which I, I would assume. So does like, does that mean if you're doing digitally, you can hem and haw and like, fuck around with it more and probably drive yourself crazy yeah you could well one thing that can happen i find with digital stuff like people might not they don't bother preparing as much i well, i'm not saying I, again like i'm not judging other people's processes like we have a certain process that we that works for us that is maybe more more difficult or more roundabout or something so, and that's how we can arrive at what we arrive at. Um, but I think one of the things that can have, one of the dangers that can happen that is like starting with the recording, like instead of like, instead of, you know, you, you, instead of starting with the composition, you just start making music on the computer, but, and the composition happens there, but that results in a certain, you know, I'm not saying that that results in something bad, but I think I can see how people, some of the problems that people will have or complain about, it's, you know, you can kind of do anything on a computer and not having any limits or boundaries can sometimes be, I mean, for me, I like to have lots of limits, you know, to not be able to just have the, the oh well we could you know do this we could do that it's like the if you have boundaries within your technology then you're that you you decide what the boundaries are and you go with that right and so that's part of the process you have it's like deciding on what the process is and what the um what you can and can't do so so then yeah it's more it's it can be more decisive i guess but is I mean, sometimes. Yeah. Oh yeah, because I've read also. You have to start over. <laughs> no, see, I I don't talk about the. I, I it's rare that I get into the technical aspects or that in in this. So it's it's fascinating to me because I do. I, just as a guy who is musically personally incapable and but in awe of the entire process of music, it's fascinating to me. But because uh, mm-hmm. and I also read how you. You, you two like to keep out the excessive flab within your music. And I was just that process help keep that your music in, in sort of the lane that you wish it to be. If that was, was that, did I articulate that? Well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, totally. Like sometimes it's a process of subtraction rather than adding more. Right. And because we have limited amounts of tracks, like, you know, you can bounce down tracks like, you know, so maybe you, maybe we put eight microphones on a drum kit and then we put that on one track, but then if we're recording even on the 16 track, I mean that then we have, we only have 15 more tracks. So we can't, sometimes you, you like, if you look at like a, a pro tool session, there'll be like a hundred tracks or something, <laughs> which is, it could be a nightmare, right? you could spend a lot more time. Cause yeah. So it's, we keep things very, you know, and it's all written down on paper too. That's the nice thing. It's like you're writing into these little squares, like what's on each track and like writing notes and everything. And, um, uh, did you have to learn? Yeah, sometimes you just, what a song. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Did I have to learn? Oh, uh, I did. No, no, no. As you built the studio, did you have to learn each machine as you went along? And like, it seems, it seems like a, quite the process, but it also seems sort of, uh, beautiful and poetic in a weird in a way yeah like the machines we i guess you know there's manuals for the machines and you have to they're often like a big binder and so you just (laughs) go and they're like typewritten like they're typewritten in a in a in a bound book or something and you just go and you read it and it's like usually translated from either 
Japanese or German. And uh, yeah, you just, it's all there and it has tips and it has like, you know, it's like technical writing, right. Which is like, could be in a, it's its own style. And so you just read it. It's, it's not like, like, I mean, I could see, I know that people, you know, went to school for some of these things, but I mean, a lot of people learn how to use these machines, like on the job, you know, like engineers, technicians. And so there's no reason why just like anybody can't just learn, I guess. <laughs> I'm an idiot. So no, I, I mean, no, I'm... you can <laughs> do it. Come up to Canada. <laughs> We're going to teach you tape recording. I would love, I just, and you're going to do your podcast on tape. I would do that. Did you think there's a reason that people have sort of moved back towards analog where that's become, for lack of better word, like romantic? Because I know like Albini has, Steve Albini has always like sort of championed it. And I feel, I don't I feel like, and, and vinyl, people are have gone back to these sort of earlier ways of listening and recording. And I wonder if there's, if you if that's, I don't know if that's too broad of a question, but w- w- if you have an inkling of why pe- that has happened. <clears throat> well, um, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think that there, yeah, people have continuously listened to, you know, vinyl, um, even when it was, you know, it did reach like a low, but then, I, I mean, I think that, it, you know, it's a more physical format. Everyone has like, you know, a pile of CDs in a closet somewhere that are just like all the jewel cases are all broken and everything. <laughs> and like, you know, vinyl, it's true. Like, I, you know, or I, you, did, you, you had like, you know, $800 worth of CDs that you digitized, but then that hard drive, and then you, you gave it all to, you know, you sold it for them for three bucks each to the, the CD store and, you know, then your hard drive just died or something, or you keep changing, you know, whatever. I mean, people lose their music collections. And now we're in this situation where people either use like whatever, you know, all of these streaming platforms that sort of devalue music. I mean, they, they literally like, like economically devalue the music, but they also maybe um, uh, socially devalue music by making it so accessible and decontextualizing it, like constantly listening to playlists that have no, you know, I mean, it's nice to be introduced to new music, but at the same time, people will just listen to music and not even know who they're listening to because they're listening to some playlist that's called like, you know, Sunday chillax or something or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know. I don't know what these, I'm being... I mean, mean, but like, I think, um, that maybe, I mean, specifically with vinyl, I mean, it, it, you do have this idea of like, you buy this, this artifact, this piece and it's, you know, it's you, it's your thing. I mean, you remember in the nineties, like, remember the nineties, no, but remember buying music (laughs) and being like, this is my a band that I like, you know? And like, even to the point where it's like, if one of your friends like bought that same record, it's like, Oh, they're like kind of copying me or something. It's like, that was my little thing, you know? Yeah. Like there's a sense of connection or almost like ownership. Like that's my band or something. And I, I don't think that's a thing anymore that I observe. And that's interesting. Maybe with vinyl, it's sort of, you, you can get back that kind of connection. I'm not sure. Well, it's like, like as a kid for me, I could like the band, the el- record albums that I owned, I could tell you like what side and what track was a song. Like I'd be like, Oh, that's side B and that's the third song. Like you can't do that. And it, that I think just those little elements make you more connected to, plus then you can look at the lyrics, you could look at the artwork, all that sh- stuff makes you more viscerally connected to the music other than it's this, thing out in the fucking cosmos (laughs) in the cloud no literally like the language like you know cloud-based streaming and it's yeah i feel like and maybe i'm this is just me and i'm projecting but 
I feel like COVID and sort of the inability for bands to tour and the loss uh, venues being lost, um, I think has people buying more music again, opposed to streaming, because I think there's an urgency to support. Uh, I know at least from my end, I'm trying to do whatever I can to support than other than streaming. So I, hopefully that maybe brings like the COVID is like this refresher where it kicks out the assholes out of our cities <laughs> right, right. and, and, and sort of gives a resurgence to buying, paying for fucking music. So it feeds the artist. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. I'm not sure. I mean, you know, people, yeah, I guess maybe people are, wanting to feel more connected to their music or yeah, it's just, I guess it's sort of like making it the music more like a, a thing in space bodies and spaces, like <laughs> just like, a thing. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. And <clears throat> in the contemplative period that we're in where we feel so everything's so virtual, you know, like I had a craft night. I'm not joking. I had a craft night on Friday on Zoom <laughs> with my friends. Like we're all going to hang out and like do our sewing. You know, I mean, that's yeah, that's really a, strange. That's how my Very wife and I there. dated. I mean, it was pre-COVID, but like we FaceTimed and we would cook the same dinner. And because she was in Madison, Wisconsin, and I was in Los Angeles. Oh, wow. So... Okay. It's not so strange to me because I've that's how I fell in love. <laughs> that sounded that I was that lonely that I had to no um No, but I think if you know that almost seems like if it was not during this period, I mean it was that would be like well at at any cost and by any means, you know. And now it's like our entire lives are Right are like that right so. is there it, the back to the spotify thing or streaming because i i'm i'm not proud but i do have a spotify account but it also is a oh you do too but you guys aren't on well, spotify i only i get it when it, they'll, they'll send me emails like it's free so i'll be like fine <laughs> i'll get i'll get it when it's but that seems even more absurd i'll get the free the free promotion or they'll do like I only, li- it's weird because I only listen to five songs. It's just these five songs that I, are too expensive to buy. Is Simple Plan um, one of them? Uh, no, <laughs> but I will look into that. that. <laughs> I just, I mean, for me, it's somewhat of a necessary evil because if somebody is like, hey, do you want to have this band on your podcast? I'm like, I have to check them out and see if it fits my... But also I like like a yeah. plethora of like super old, weird jazz and it's like, I can't afford to buy... All that's exactly and those guys are dead so i'm not stealing their residuals and their family is probably dead too so if it's from the 30s right (laughs) it's fine no i mean it's one of those things like i think it's you know spotify has to change it's like putting all of the weight on like consumers i think is you know shaming i'm 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 done with shaming consumers you know go after the right the big guy yeah, I, I, yeah. I can't think of his name, but the dude from Camper Van Beethoven and Cracker, he had a long-standing lawsuit with these the streaming pl- platforms, and he wouldn't stream. But I noticed he's uh, he's now all his bands stream, and I don't know if it's just like a necessary evil these days because at least it's out there. But the pay is garbage, right? The what? Yeah, I don't, I don't, we're not on Spotify or anything, so I don't know exactly, but I, I, it's like pennies or not, it's like 0.01 cents per stream or something. So it's not a way that people make money for sure. It's, but it, but then it's sort of like you get bullied. Some people get bullied into it because it's like, well, you don't exist if you're not on the platform, I guess. There's that sort of mentality maybe. So, yeah, creating these kinds of monopolies, I suppose, like, you know, it's like, yeah, it's like your, it's like your, you know, say you invented something, but then you refuse to have it 
on Amazon, it's like, it's like you don't exist. Right. right? Cause people will look up what's the best widget. And, and then there's all of these like websites that just have Amazon links. This is not quite a parallel. I just wanted to talk about Amazon. I, I despise <laughs> Amazon with every fiber. I just, I'm just joking. I would, I would like to see Bezos uh, humili- humiliated in public for what he's done to workers' rights and and all that. Yeah. My lefty, my lefty bullshit's coming out. But um, and you all have you have a new album coming out in February? Yeah. Yeah, on Groundhog Day, in fact. <laughs> that was completely unintentional, but... Uh, you should lie and say it was totally intentional. But then I would have to think of, like, <laughs> what does it mean? I don't really... I can't really work that out. Okay, yeah, that's too much know. work. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why. I don't. I don't, can't think of the significance of Groundhog Day, really, of like how it relates to a record. But yeah, in February, and so yeah, yeah, and on Moon Records, and yeah, we're super. Actually, um, yeah, there'll be some like different previews of songs before then. So yeah, I haven't. I have a. I was hoping the copy. I was. I was supposed to get a copy, but it hasn't showed up yet, so I can't speak to the songs. <laughs> Uh, on it oh, okay okay but i i oh, was like i was got, hoping it would be here yesterday got, so but it didn't show up oh we would have i would have sent you the files or whatever oh that's the cloud okay. the cloud version but how do you because uh, how long was the process of putting this album together because i did was i correct in reading that uh in the bottle garden was like a eight year like an eight year process of putting that album together or is that did I misread that? Cause I'm uh, uneducated. Oh, Chicagoan. No, no. Uh, yeah. In the bottle garden was 2009, I guess. And then like our last record was 2013. The, um, Do not affect a breezy manner. And that, yeah. So yeah. So we haven't released a record. It, that was the last one in 2013, but yeah, I guess like we, yeah well i would say yeah it takes us a while to put together records and recording songs over time and yeah i don't know i'm not sure i don't want to it we did not take seven years to record this record i won't say that (laughs) but you but you have the studio do you like i'm always curious if you're like hey let's i got a gem of an idea let's go down to the studio like do you have that approach or do you are you more strict about it because it, it's uh. yeah i mean sometimes <clears throat> well i mean you're a writer right did you and research you pro- me a little bit <laughs> <laughs> or so I- you know what it's like so you when someone's like oh you like writing right or you really love it you're like you I imagine I'm not going to speak for you but I'm you you know I think you could probably relate it's like you're not like woo I'm gonna write I'm gonna (laughs) I'm gonna sit down and I'm gonna have I'm gonna just you know here comes a great novel I'm gonna start with the first word once you know it's it's so like People don't, who are, I, I don't know how to say it. It's like, it's, it's hard. The process is always hard. It's like the, you know, motivation, um, psyching yourself out to like, just go and do it. It's like, there's, there's so much, I don't want to say struggle. That's the, maybe the wrong word, but like, it's not a clean, it's not like time to go in the studio. We're going to just do this. It's like. I don't even know how we do it. Like, I, I don't even know how, cause there, sometimes there's parts that just uh, are really difficult. And then sometimes it's just like, wow, that was really fun and easy. It's so unpredictable. And the, all you can do with process is really <sighs> create certain conditions, but you can never, I, I'm like, it can never depend on myself to be in a certain mindset or, or just, when it's like, yeah, just do it. Just go and just record that. Just write a song, do this. It's like, 
but how, how does that even happen? How does like, you know, the intention turn into the actual product, the final thing. And it's, it's still a complete mystery. So I'm always, I don't know. I, I would love to hear how you, what you think about that as a writer. It's weird. Cause I was thinking, cause like the other day I had these words, I was in bed and I had these words in my head and I was like, okay, I like this. I like, but then when you go and sit down to do it, those words that were in your head, run off and hide in the distance and you're like wait where the fuck did that go like it's it's all this anxious there's a like, amount of almost anxiety that has to build up in me before i can go do something creative if that makes like yeah i'm never like relaxed and like all right man here it goes like <laughs> and like if uh yeah. like collaborations like i i was at second city for uh in chicago so we'd work on these shows and you know there'd be parts it would just be this like process of where you're like okay we're gonna do a show and then like in a couple weeks you're like fuck i suck at this <laughs> like and like you it would be this process of self-loathing and then delusional like i'm this and i am great and then and then by the end of it you're like i have no fucking idea what this is going to be like but we are done and hopefully no one hates us i guess the thing about a show like if it's a, something that has a date it's like it's those last like twilight hours and you don't have a choice so whatever you do it's like you just do it and then just hope for the best like i you know like hearing about the process of like snl how they just like i mean they have they have to make a show like they can't they just can't and it's going live and so like the last few hours they're still working out what they're doing they should like, really take some more time if you've seen the show <laughs> <laughs> which is fine yeah, no yeah i'm not even going to comment on that but just that, <laughs> that that very process of like you know well that yeah i mean it's just like i guess when you're making something like a book or a an album right it doesn't necessarily have a deadline I mean, it usually has a deadline, but it's not just like we're opening the curtains, right? And whatever whatever happens is is the show, right? Yeah. So, the most interesting process I've ever read about was, um, or actually heard about, was uh, the way SCTV worked, which I was fascinated by. I'm sure you're aware of SCTV. You're Canadian. Mm -hmm. uh, by the, in my humble opinion, the best sketch comedy show to ever exist. And John Candy and Rick Moranis are two of the and Martin Short, probably the three funniest individuals. The, all of the, anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, they would write for six weeks. They would take six weeks off to let it ruminate like a bunch of bohemians. And then they would return after six weeks and then finish writing the season. And I was like, that, I mean, you would never, uh, that would never be allowed in most network situations. But I was like fascinated by that. And that's probably why that show was so fucking great because they allowed themselves the time to. Yeah. It's like they understood something about like the brain. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they really have had like, I didn't know that. That's so interesting that S Stephen King. Those must've been nice six weeks off where you're just like, Hey, what, I mean, what did they do during that time? What's happening? Well, the early days of that show too was shot in Edmonton. So I don't think it's, <laughs> I think the weather sucks there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're talking, I don't really understand Fahrenheit, so I'm just going to drop some Celsius on you, but like, Celsius yeah, it's like wisdom. minus 40 Celsius. Just yeah. go and convert that. I mean, there's some clips too of them outside and you can tell it's brutal in the, um, but yeah, yeah. Stephen King suggests that too. I, I'm curious if like, he'll say like you finish your draft, wait, like I forget. He said some, six months or four, three months. And I was like, that would drive me crazy. But I'm, I'm wondering, have you ever done that with like your process of music of like, all right, we're going to put it away for a while and then revisit. Not intentionally. No, but maybe, um, maybe life kind of did that too. Or, you know, like I don't, yeah, that's an interesting question. Yeah. Letting something definitely like there's been pieces that, you know, we come back to, 
yeah, the, uh, there's a, unintentionally a pause and, and then something that, God, it's so weird how things can sound so different. You know, you, you get wrapped up in like, uh, the tone of something or some just nuanced, um, aspect of music. And then you come back to it later on and it's just like, I just, it just doesn't matter. Or it's like you, yeah, you, the tunnel vision is gone, I guess. So you can sort of, yeah, you can let that sort of go. So, yeah, I think it, I think it is a good, it can be a, a good, process but I think it's also nice like you know we've also done songs where we just did everything from beginning to end in like you know less than a week and the sort of cohesiveness of, of a song like that can be nice too so just getting it done so I think like for our next what we do next we, we've been talking about that we actually want to do more like you know, that we work on one song at a time from beginning to end and just have it more cohesive, whether or not there's gaps in working on that song, not sure, but yeah, just to have that sort of not thinking of the whole record all the time, but thinking of one song and the lyrics and everything. Cause you know, sometimes we, we decide, okay. I mean, a lot of people do this like record all the drums and record all the, all the bass do a little bit of that, you know, but I don't think we wanted to do that again. It always seems weird to me when people record each part separately in a song. I I don't like, then you hear of people who just record as a band, they just play it and they record it. And that that seems so much easier and more coherent than just a guy playing drums to a, I don't know, random thought from my brain. I mean, I think, uh, with most recording pros, I mean, you might all play together, but then not use the tracks. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you might just keep, you know, it, that's more how, but yeah, I mean, it, there's a lot of recording live off the floor, as they say, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's a different sound because it, it is a bit more like um, you have to accept certain amounts of bleed into the various microphones. Um, and yeah, if that makes sense. You might have like drums that show up in the, in a, an amp mic. And so if you were to add any kind of effect to that in production, then you would, you might also be like increasing the volume of that snare that came through in the amp, in the amp mic. So there's like technological problems, but there's ways of making things feel more live. I mean, if you listen to jazz, that's all like, I mean, sometimes there's like one microphone. It's crazy. Like, wow. You know, like an Omni microphone in the room. Sorry, my cat's going to come and interrupt. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, those are, you know, like any of the Village Vanguard records, like where you can hear some chatter and glasses. I always and, dig that. You know, oh, it's amazing. That's yeah. like those kind of albums, like it brings you like you're there to an extent. Like it's really, especially if you do the headphones thing, which is great. I got Mingus at the Bohemia is one of the first jazz records I bought and it was like live and you can hear a lot of those sounds and you can hear him like sort of yelling at the musicians and it's just like, I don't know, it's so unique and it'd be cool if somebody did that again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, if we're ever uh, observe, like watching live music in the cafe again <laughs> or a venue, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I love, like, yeah, Bill Evans, Live at the Village Vanguard. It's, like, such a comforting record to me. It, that sense of, of place, you know? Yeah. yeah I mean, if, it, you know, I mean, if, I think a lot of music can sound like it's, it doesn't have a place. It's not, you don't have a sense of being somewhere, which is, a, okay, I don't know if we achieve that, but it, it's interesting, you know, mu- I, I like records where you do have a sense of like, of, of that. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you, anything to, to wind it down, anything, you, uh, uh, 
please plug the new album and when that'll be out and if there's anything else and I'll put everything in the show notes so people can go there and quickly easily link to purchase but if there anything I may not be aware of yeah uh well I would just say uh yeah so our record will be in February there'll be like a pre-order or whatever so check out moon records m-o-o-n-e records and uh yeah that's about it it's uh fe- yeah February 27 February 2nd second so, so 2 2 2021 okay and <laughs> i don't know if that's significant in numerology <laughs> it is it means yeah. big hit record in numerology sick so happy <laughs> uh thank you so much for your time i really enjoyed this i hope you did as well you don't have to say it. i enjoyed it so much <laughs> thank you so much and uh yeah I'll keep in touch uh, when you come to canada so for listening to conversations with matt dwyer please remember to go to the linked tree uh link in my show notes and support me on patreon if you can or just tell your friends about the show that would really mean a great deal to me tell people about the show and follow my social media and again if if you like join the patreon become a subscriber and get bonus material videos blogs all kinds of stuff thank you very much for listening